Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Rev. Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, verses 1 through 8. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Romans 10, beginning in verse 1. Brothers and sisters, My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, to God be the glory for the reading of Holy Scripture. And in my talk with you today, I have a couple, maybe three confessions that I want to share with you. And uh, I'm not too tall and I'm not too big to make confessions. God is bigger. And so I make my confessions before him. But here's the first confession I want to share with you. When When I read the opening sentences of Paul's words found in chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, I do find myself having what I call a love-jealousy relationship with Paul's words. Let me explain what I mean. For example, in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, he says these words, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. So when I read these words, I just love Paul's open, honest language regarding his own people. And it says to me that this brother had an urgency. He had a desire to see his people come to know Jesus the Messiah. In today's reading, and this is the second opening line in Romans chapter 10, You hear that honesty again where Paul says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, namely his Jewish people, is that they may be saved. And then you go over to chapter 11, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. He says, you see this certainty and hopefulness. You see this certainty and hopefulness that he has for his people. And he says these words, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people for whom he foreknew. So again, I love what Paul has to say here. 
but then I am jealous of what he says. And when I look at my own life, I know that I don't have the same urgency, I don't have the same desire, or even the clarity that Paul has for wanting people to know Jesus the Messiah. Why is that so? And what can we do about it? And that's in part what I want to talk to you about this morning. In fact, over the next two Sundays, this Sunday today and next Sunday, I would like to have you join me in thinking about the urgency, and I'm going to say the word, evangelism. The urgency or the necessity of evangelism as I see displayed in Romans chapter 10. So we're going to spend two weeks just in this chapter. And I know the excuses that I have sometimes made. You know, I sometimes say, well, you know, Paul lived in a different time, a simpler time. We live in a a rather complex time. And and of course, that's not true. Paul's times were were just as complex as ours. He lived in a religiously diverse culture, just like we do. And the people who were followers of Jesus, the faith, the Christian faith, it was not the only religious game in town. In fact, Jesus' followers were first called Christians when Paul and Barnabas and others were in Antioch, Antioch, a region in Turkey that we now know as Antakya. Christianity was not the only game in town. And so like his time and ours, people looked at Christians with suspicion. They looked at Christians back then and today with disdain, sometimes with admiration, but often people would look at us and think, you folks are crazy. And yet, Paul and his friends started churches and communities from one end of the Roman Empire to the next, from east to west. Paul raised up churches, raised up leaders, And when you get to the end of Romans chapter 15, you see Paul telling them that I'd like to go to Spain. I mean, he really wanted to go to the outer reaches of the Roman Empire and plant more churches and see more people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I suppose one of the questions we can ask ourselves then is how did Paul do it? And maybe by answering that question, we can learn then how to develop the same urgency for evangelism and for sharing Christ that Paul had. Part of the answer to the question, how did he do it, I think comes from what he said in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. This is where you find the real fire in Paul's belly. This is where you find the real passion. He says in in chapter 1 and verse 16, for I am not ashamed. And that word there simply means, and we know the meaning for that word, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not put off. I don't feel any guilt. I don't have any negative feelings about the gospel. The gospel there means good news. Euangelion, good news. It's the power of God. He said, this is the reason why I'm not ashamed. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes or who has faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So in the gospel and through the gospel, Paul then advances his mission. It's the gospel that fed his desire and his conviction of wanting others to know about the Messiah. Now, here's something we have to keep in mind. Paul was a human being just like us. And I don't want you to make the mistake of placing Paul on a different plane. 
I don't want you to make the mistake of saying, well, Paul just happened to be gifted and he was this kind of professional preacher and church planter. And so, pastor, I'm sorry, I'm not like Paul. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to do that. Paul was just a, a human being just like us. Think to also keep in mind that even if you're a casual reader of the Bible, you've heard about how Paul was converted, how we went from being called Saul to being called Paul. And so there is Saul before the Damascus Road experience, and there is Paul after the Damascus Road experience. And it was in that experience of conversion where God changed his life that he became this passionate, devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Before that, Paul proudly showed his colors. I'm a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I'm a keeper of the law. And everything that he did before coming to Christ, everything about the Jewish faith, it was the, the controlling element. It was the dynamism in his life. He spent every waking moment trying to be faithful to the law, trying to please the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is not a bad thing. Paul was so passionate about his way of life that when he encountered people whom he thought were diluting the faith, weakening Judaism, he would attack them. And that's what he did to the Christians. And then you know the story in Acts 9. On his way to Damascus to arrest and uproot the Christian movement, the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul and changed his life, changed his purpose, changed his reason for living. And Jesus gave him a mission that he would be a light to the Gentiles. Now, the thing about Paul is that he still had his anger problem. He was still a very passionate guy. He still was driven. He still liked to get things done. He still liked to see things built. But now it was being used in honor and in glory to the Lord. And so he says, my desire is to see Jews and Gentiles saved. And I want you to hold on to that word. I, don't, I, I want you to not be afraid of saying that people need to be saved. One of the most important themes that you find in Romans is that it has a focus on the gospel. You could say that the gospel, Romans is a gospel-centered, it's a mission-centered, a gospel-driven, a mission-driven book. Paul wants to see Jews first come to Christ, and he wants Gentiles to know this Christ, to know this Messiah. And so we can read Romans then as more than just a book to argue over about all the difficulties in the book that people argue about. Instead, let us read it as an exploration in missions. And let us marvel at the strategy that Paul employs to advance the mission of the gospel through evangelism to reach people. And you also notice then in Romans 9 through 11 that Paul's concern is for his people, the Jews. You just see it. That's really what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are about. He wants his people to know the Messiah. And through his ministry... He observed that the nations were coming to Christ, Africans and Greeks and people in Asia Minor, the Gentiles, let's use the word the Gentiles, were readily coming to Christ. But when he looked at his people, the Jewish people, they vigorously rejected Jesus as Messiah. He couldn't understand why. They had the covenants. He said they had the laws, they had the prophets, they had the word of God, 
And yet, even though the prophets predicted that the Messiah would come, he would be born in Bethlehem, even though Jesus came to his own people, they rejected him. And Paul is concerned, and Paul wants to know why. And he begins to give an answer as to why people have rejected Christ. And he says in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, if you have your Bibles, you could take a look at it with me. He says, I can testify that they have a zeal for God, but it's not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own way, and you want to underline that phrase, their own way, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Paul is saying, look, I'm speaking from experience. There was a time in my life when I did the same thing. I too had zeal for God, but it was not based on knowledge. Enthusiasm is a good thing, isn't it? But listen, passion can run riot and lead to disastrous results. And Paul says, I know something about that. It was St. Augustine who said it this way, it's better to limp in the right way than to run with all your might out of the wrong way, zeal without knowledge. I've lived long enough, you've lived long enough to hear people say this very, very genuinely. We've heard people say this modern day proverb, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Do you believe that? I hope you don't, because Paul says right here that the Jews were sincere. They were zealous in their beliefs, but their beliefs missed the mark. And so truth without knowledge can be deadly. I want you to imagine your neighbor, a lady, a neighbor, a person in your neighborhood, very loving lady, wants to bring you a bouquet of flowers. She loves you so much that she goes to the store and buys you this big, beautiful bouquet of flowers, not realizing that you, you are, are desperately allergic to flowers. Now, I think that's an example of zeal without knowledge. And that kind of zeal without knowledge can be deadly. Or you could imagine a person who intensely believes that, that a poison solution is not fat fatal. And so the person drinks it. And because they drink it, they fall dead. Zeal without knowledge can be deadly. And so as long as the Jewish people continue to reach God, try to reach God, as long as they continue to try to reach God and try to find perfection on their terms, Paul says they will lose their way. Now, I think what makes it so hard is what Paul says in the remaining chapters this morning. He says, look, these people, my people, the Jewish people, they have two great resources to guide them. They have the Messiah. Notice what he says in chapter 10 in verse 4. Christ is the end of the law so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, what Paul is saying is because of the coming of the Messiah, the law as a system the law as a pathway to righteousness has ended. The other reason why Paul is troubled is not only that they have the Messiah, but they also have the prophets and the scriptures. And in verses 5 through 8, he reminds them of the words of Moses, both in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy. So it's as if Paul is saying, look, there is no reason 
for them to stay in ignorance. There is no excuse for their lack of knowledge because they have Christ, the Messiah, and they have the law, they have the word of God, they have the prophets. And he quotes from Leviticus 18, verse 5, and he says, Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law that the person who does these things will live by them, or better yet, the person who does these things will live because of them. Moses is saying, if you can obey the law perfectly, you would live. You will receive eternal life. But the problem, problem is, can you find a person who has perfect score on keeping the law? That's the problem. So when Moses said those words, and when Paul repeated them, he was showing the dilemma of trying to live by the law as a way to know God, to find God, to experience eternal life. And then Paul references these words from Deuteronomy. He says, but the righteousness that comes from faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? The word, the word, the word of God, it's near you, it's on your lips, it's in your mouth. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And to make sense of what he says here, you would have to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 1 through 14 to fully grasp what Paul is doing. Because as you know in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is all about a repeat of the covenant that God made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And Moses now is reminding them of what they need to do to experience the blessing of God. They must abide by the word of God. Let me, let me quote exactly what Moses said to the people, and it's very similar to what Paul said. The word about what God has done is near you. Listen to what Moses said. Surely this commandment that I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you. It's not, nor is it too far away. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us so we may hear it and observe it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will cross to the other side of the sea for us and get it for us so that we may hear it and observe it. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth. It is in your heart for you to observe. And I think this is a beautiful example of what it means to have zeal with knowledge. Because based on the word of God, based on the promises of God, we trust in Jesus, our Messiah, as our Savior, the one who makes us righteous. And it is the word of God. And what it tells us about God, about Jesus, it is that word that saves us. And God has given us his word. God has given us Jesus. God has given us the word, as a, the word of the prophets as a gift. It's that close to us. And what we must do now is to receive God's word. Stop trusting in ourselves and trust in him for our salvation. That's what Paul means. It's a gift. It's come down to us. God's righteousness as revealed in scripture. And in that sense, he says, I'm concerned. Because the people of God, they have it. And yet they're still pursuing righteousness on their terms. 
So as I close, let me share some takeaways. And this is where I'll make another confession. Here are my takeaways as I read the words of Paul. First of all, God's methods for reaching Jews and Gentiles with the gospel, it has not changed. Second takeaway, the human condition is still dire. People need to be saved. I don't want you to be ashamed of saying that word. People are still in dire conditions and they need to be saved. Here's a third observation. The gospel is still good news. It is the word of God that saves. It's good news. And, it is, and this is number four. It is through the sharing and the telling of the gospel that people hear and believe. Think about that. And so number five takeaway. And so the essential task of the church is evangelism. There's no other way for the church to reach people. Sure, we could build beautiful buildings. Sure, we can, uh, we can devise all kinds of attractional means to bring people into the building, but I have never read in scripture that when people come into your building and fill all the pews, that it means they're saved. The only way, the only way that people can be saved is through the gospel. And the task of the church is evangelism. There's no other way to reach people than by sharing the gospel. We must share the gospel. We must advance the mission of God through evangelism. And you say, well, Pastor, what is evangelism? Evangelism is teaching the gospel, sharing the gospel with the aim to persuade. And every Christian, and this is my last takeaway, every Christian is called to share this good news. So my confession, and I want to be honest with you about our church's mission statement. I have a love-hate relationship with our mission statement. So I have a love-jealousy relationship with Paul, and now I have a love-hate relationship with our mission statement. And you see the mission statement on your screen. And I could say this in my sleep. We are committed to doing these things, to know Jesus Christ, to grow in him as we serve and make disciples in Evanston, the Chicago area, and the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in this statement. That's not my problem. I believe in it. I love the clarity. I love the comprehensiveness of our mission. But something is still missing in you and in me. We're not fired up about the mission of our church. It doesn't permeate our thinking. It doesn't shape the way we live, the way we organize our church, the way we live our lives from day to day. It really doesn't. And I think I'm being honest. I think you're nodding your head and you're agreeing with me. And the reason is not hard to find. Mission statements don't mean much if the people are not influenced by it. Now, Paul had a clear reason, a clear why for sharing the gospel and doing evangelism. He knew it. He wanted to do it. And he said it, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. His desire to see people saved moved him to pray and to serve. He said, well, why, pastor? Why is that a big deal? Well, if people are not saved... They're lost. I know we live in a pluralistic society. 
And people say, you know, all these different religions, they all lead to God. And I'm not here to argue that with you. I'm speaking to you as a pastor in a Christian church out of the framework of how we read and understand the scriptures. If people are not saved, Jesus himself said it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If people are not saved, they're lost. And next week, when we come back to part two of Romans 10, you'll see why this is so critical. And so the task of evangelism belongs to us. It's not just Paul's responsibility. It's not just my responsibility. It's not just the staff's responsibility. It's the responsibility of the whole church. Here's an amazing thing that I read this week. The big cruise line conglomerate, Princess Cruise, recently did a survey, and here's what they found. That Americans said on this survey that if they could only accomplish one goal in their lifetime, nearly three quarters of the respondents said they would choose a travel-related goal. Now, for the business end of the cruise line industry, this is good news. And they're going to pull out the stops to try to get that three quarters of the American public to take a cruise with them. That's the bucket list for many of us. We want to travel. Then I said to myself, imagine if everyone shared as their bucket list, wrote as their bucket list, sharing the gospel with the lost would be the thrill of, 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 my, of my living, of my lifetime. Sharing the gospel with the lost. Would you be willing to put that on your bucket list? So let me, let me stop. What's the one thing you and I could do starting today to prioritize evangelism in our lives? And it may shock you what I'm going to tell you. We go back to Romans 10, and we go back to verse 1, and we go back to Paul's yearning, desire and prayer. Now, we may not know how to share Christ with others, we may not know what to say to share Christ with others, but I think the Lord is giving us the starting points. Desire. Do you have a desire to see others come to know Christ? Do you ever pray to see others come to know Christ? And so I've just been praying that God would give to our church the desire to pray that our friends and our family and our neighbors and strangers would be saved. That's it. That's a great place to start. God gives us the desires of our hearts. Did you know that? And so if you would just begin to pray for the neighbors in your building, pray for the people who live on your street, pray for that father or that mother or that family member who's yet to believe, who's yet to be saved. That's a good place to start to cultivate a heart for evangelism. And so next Sunday, next Sunday, we'll pick this up in the rest of chapter 10, and we want to learn how to share Christ with others. Evangelism, sharing good news in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And God's people say, Amen.